Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. And I'm Jeremy Cronick, Director of Monetary and Financial Services Research here at the CDO Institute. And I'm Steve Ambler, Fellow in Residence at the CDO Institute. Jeremy and Stephen's latest report for the Institute is titled, quote, Vatis, the future of the Bank of Canada's balance sheet. So where is the BOC going? The report explores the consequences of an enlarged balance sheet and the structural changes that may continue to expand it. All of this amid a soaring inflationary environment and that one-two punch of the Bank of Canada's tightening cycle and quantitative tightening aimed at knocking it to the mat. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Bring us up to speed. Jeremy, where are we today compared to pre-pandemic? And Steve, perhaps you can follow up with the why. Sure. So yeah, before the pandemic, the bank's balance sheet was around $120 billion. Uh, it, it shot up to, I believe, around $575 billion during the middle of 2021. It's now come back down as, as uh, the bank has started this tightening cycle and is around $435 billion today. So down from its peak, but, but you know, orders of magnitude bigger than it was uh, when we started. So, Steve, how did we get here? Uh, so, Jeremy talked about the, uh, the increase in the overall size of the balance sheet, but uh, if you look at settlement balances, which were depo- essentially deposits that banks and other financial institutions hold with the Bank of Canada, the increase is even more staggering than that. Uh, before the pandemic, we were talking about less than a billion dollars, something in the order of 250 million. And it, uh, those settlement balances peaked at, uh, I think, 250 billion, if my memory is correct. So we're talking about a, uh, an increase on the order of a thousand of, of those. So what happened was, and uh, there were basically enough settlement balances around so that uh, uh, ba- banks had enough balances so that they could operate in uh, in in the payment system, clearing payments at the end of the day. Uh, they some of them had excess balances to lend to other banks in the overnight market. There was an active overnight market. When the pandemic hit, the Bank uh, of Canada first of all started uh, to try and stabilize financial markets by buying large amounts of securities, not just federal government debt, but uh, Debt, uh, public debt from provinces as well, and private securities to to keep financial markets uh, liquid and hold uh, keep down spreads between various different types of, of instruments. Uh, they they got rid of a lot of the uh, provincial and private debt fairly quickly, but they uh, the amount of federal government debt that they, they 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 bought they've kept a lot of it and. That's what's mostly responsible for the huge increase in, in settlement balances. What that does is that um, you know, essentially all of the banks uh, that hold balances with the Bank of Canada are extremely liquid. Uh, the overnight market essentially has disappeared. They don't need to, there are no banks that need to borrow balances from other banks anymore. And in order to, in, to incentivize bal- the banks to hold all these settlement balances, um, the Bank of Canada, early in the pandemic, in uh, March 2020, essentially started paying the same rate of interest on those settlement balances as the, the overnight rate. That's when the, the overnight rate went to what the bank considers it to be its floor of 25 basis points. 
So, Jeremy, help me, who's who's certainly not a, a Bank of Canada expert, understand the implications for this. Why are you raising this as, is it a red flag? Is it a yellow flag? Uh, why write this report in the first place to draw attention to this issue? Well, so I think there's a few different things at play. So, so one, I mean, just, you know, this is a complex topic, the bank's balance sheet. Um, and obviously, the bank's been in the news a fair amount with inflation, uh, you know, as high as it is and a lot of discussion around quantitative easing, which is what Steve was just talking about, uh, what the bank did once it hit the, you know, the, the effective lower bound for its overnight rate. So we thought, A, first, it was important just to, uh, you know, get an explanatory piece out there on what's happened to the bank's balance sheet and why it matters, uh, what role it plays, uh, you know, in, in uh, you know, in its impact on inflation and then we also wanted to turn to what are going to be some of the driving factors for the size of the balance sheet you know, as we look ahead in the short run, in the medium run. In the short run, we know they're unwinding some of this, you know, some of this increase in the balance sheet as part of this tightening cycle. But there's going to be some forces that are going to be, uh, you know, driving the balance sheet, we think, uh, to stay somewhat elevated in the medium run. And, you know, we wanted to get out and explain what those forces were and, again, what impact they could have. Uh, you know, on the operation of monetary policy and the hitting of the inflation target. Well, well, then I, I suppose, Steve, we should get into um, the importance of shrinking that balance sheet as a means of ensuring that the Bank of Canada has more ammunition to fight whatever may come down the pike in the future. Um, that's right. I mean, some people would actually say that uh, this actually does, in a sense, provide uh, additional ammunition to the Bank of Canada. I mean, it's, we're now operating in what's called a floor system, where uh, settlement balances or reserves are plentiful and uh, essentially the overnight market has disappeared. What that allows the Bank of Canada to do is actually set um, uh, an overnight rate target and an overnight rate that's independent from the amount of settlement balances in, in the system, which are, are overly plentiful is one way of putting it. It's a, a very different operating framework uh, now than what we've seen before in Canada. Uh, in the U.S., the the Fed has operated under this type of system ever since the end of the, uh, the financial crisis. So they've had quite a bit more experience operating with a system like this than, than we do. But for, for Canadians, I think it's, it's something that's new and quite a bit different. So we thought we had to uh, explain some of the, the numbers and the the justifications as well. So do I understand this correctly? From what I've read of, of your report, we're in a, a situation where at the end of the day, uh, often in the past anyway, banks would need to borrow either from the Bank of Canada or from each other to ensure that there's an effective settlement at the end of, of the day so that the books are balanced, basically. But because of the environment in which we find ourselves right now, banks aren't needing to turn to the central bank to make that happen. They're just working between each other. Well, so it's a little bit different. So so the overnight rate um, is the rate that the banks lend uh, and borrow from each other to settle, as you said. Um, and so in, in normal times before the pandemic here in Canada, the bank operated what's called a corridor system. And the idea there is that the rate they can earn uh, on deposit at the bank and the rate they can borrow from the bank, the overnight rate sits in the middle. So you're trying to incentivize the banks to, to borrow and lend with each other to settle, right? But in, in this system now under the floor system, 
whereby uh, there are, as Steve said, overly plentiful settlement balances for each bank. Um, they won't they won't even need to borrow with each other, lend with each other to settle at the end of the day because they have sufficient settlement balances uh, on their books. So that's where you get into this, this floor system as opposed to a corridor system. And because of that, you have to set the overnight rate and the deposit rate equal to each other. Yeah, under the old the old system, there were some banks that were that had surplus balances, and other banks that needed to borrow. And the Bank of Canada could just supply uh, inject a small amount of settlement balances into the system, uh, so that uh, th that's essentially what determined the, the overnight rate. It had a target, and then by varying the amount of settlement balances, it could uh, hit the target by supplying extra reserves or balances into the overnight market. Now, uh, as Jeremy and I have said, settlement balances are so plentiful that there's no more overnight market. And uh, the, uh, the overnight rate is essentially equivalent to the, the deposit rate which banks receive for leaving balances with the Bank of Canada. So what are the implications for the Bank of Canada when we talk about its balance sheet being three times greater than what it was pre-pandemic? Right. So this is where it gets, uh, you know, uh, a bit tricky, right? So um, the, from a monetary policy perspective, it, as Steve mentioned earlier, it does give the bank uh, two different tools to perform monetary policy with, right? Because now the overnight rate and, and the Bank of Canada's balance sheet are independent of each other. So um, And so they can use both uh, to do the kind of monetary policy they feel is necessary to hit the inflation target. I think where the debate lies or where the, where, where the question lies is how much of the quantitative easing that got us to this point, um, you know, led to the inflation that we're seeing today. And this is a really, uh, you, you know, interesting topic that I think there's going to be a lot of uh, research on for the coming years, because if you look at what happened to the U.S. and the Fed, who did quantitative easing back in 08, there was no inflation, really. I mean, the battle after 08, 09 was to get inflation up, right? And despite the fact that they did this quantitative easing, and then this time around, uh, the quantitative easing that a lot of these countries did has led to inflation. So the question is, what is you know how much is QE responsible for that? And then what differences happen today compared to what happened 15 years ago? But uh, in terms of just purely the operational side of things, uh, this does give the bank two tools to, to perform its monetary policy. So if quantitative easing plays a role in increasing uh, inflation, and now we are in a high inflationary environment, uh, what is the connection between shrinking the bank's balance sheet and the implications for inflation? Steve? Um, well, the bank's own, you know, initially, as I said uh, earlier, the, the initial uh, buying of all of these assets was mostly to stabilize financial markets. And it was later on that once things had sort of calmed down that the Bank of Canada turned to quantitative easing per se. And their main justification for buying more assets was to actually influence, uh, keep uh, longer term interest rates low to aid in the recovery. Um, so it wasn't, uh, so, so the, the link with inflation is not direct. And as Jeremy pointed out, in the U.S., the Fed did an enormous amount of quantitative easing and inflation stayed low. It stayed under target until until the pandemic hit. And, um, you know, there, there's a there is already a large uh, literature on quantitative easing in the U.S. 
And uh, some researchers actually claim or maintain that by paying uh, what, the, what the Fed did and what the Bank of Canada is now doing, paying uh, interest rates on reserves or on settlement balances, you're actually incentivizing banks just to sit on these balances, keep them with the central bank rather than lend them out. Um, so I think the, 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 the big and perhaps the crucial difference between what's going on now, both in the US and in Canada, and what went on between say 2011 and 2020 is uh, what happened with uh, government, government deficits. So, Steve, yeah. while the BOC is shrinking its balance sheet, you write that there are forces that might keep it elevated for a while yet. Yeah. So simultaneously with uh, quantitative easing and the pandemic and everything else, uh, there's been some major changes in uh, the way the payments system is operating in, in Canada. Um, so essentially, they're, they're going from uh, settling everything between or among banks at the end of the day to uh, a real-time uh, payment system. Uh, so things are going to be settled actually during the day rather than just at the end of the day. And we think um, this is probably something that's going to uh, elicit some discussion as well, that this is actually going to be uh, lead to banks demanding more settlement balances because they have to have them ready pretty much any time during the day to, to, to swap, uh, swap payments across banks. Whereas before, you know, they could just leave things sitting until the end of the day. And then if they needed extra balances, go into the overnight market and borrow them. So we think that uh, this is going to lead to an increase in demand for settlement balances. Uh, so the settlement balances are still going to be in excess supply. So we're still going to be in a situation where the the overnight rate and the deposit rate are going to be equal and uh, there's going to be more than plentiful uh, balances in the system. But as the supply of balances shrinks, that's quantitative tightening by the Bank of Canada, simultaneously we're going to see a gradual rise in the demand. And that means that sooner or later, we, we don't have a firm idea on how long it's going to take, we're going to get back to a system where we're going to, where settlement balances are no longer going to be clearly in excess supply. So that would mean a return to the the corridor system that we had before uh, the pandemic. And that's not even taking into account the prospect of digital currencies, a, a central bank-based digital currency at some point in the future. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So that's another part of it as well, would be uh, the introduction of a central bank digital currency. And to Steve's earlier convo, to, you know, also potentially eliciting uh, you know, some some discussion is around what kind of increased demand there might be uh, for a CBDC relative to, uh, you know, our demand for cash today, right? Our, our argument they're putting forth in the paper is that, you know, part of why people carry don't carry cash today is because then because it's a, you know, there's an opportunity cost of their time to going to the bank, going to the ATM and taking out the cash under a CBDC with digital cash that's not really an issue anymore. And so things like that, that might increase the demand for public money, which is what cash is, which is what CBDC is, um, that would also have the effect of potentially increasing the size of the balance sheet. Now, even here, there's, there's further complexity because uh, to the extent that the demand for public money uh, comes at the expense of deposits being held at uh, commercial banks, 
Um, you, you know, there are some some issues around what those commercial bank balance sheets might look like for liquidity purposes, for capital purposes, which could change the settlement balance story. So there's there's a bunch of different factors at play that need to be worked out. But we, we think that that increased demand for public money could have the impact of also keeping the balance sheet more elevated than it was before the pandemic. So then what's the impact on monetary policy when you've got this tug of war between the BOC and these external forces? Yeah, so I can jump in there and see maybe you'll have some thoughts as well. So, I mean, again, if we go back to the original story about the floor system, if, if, that, if, if the point we're making is the balance sheet's going to remain elevated in the medium run, uh, which might force uh, a floor system in place. Um, you know, there are, I think there are upsides and there are downsides to such a system. As we mentioned earlier, the real-time settlement um, is, you know, is toted as one of the, um, you know, one of the good things about the modernization of our payment system. And the floor system helps with that because of the abundance of settlement balances. Um, but there is also, you know, there are also potential downsides. So one potential downside of the floor system is the bank has to have an, an elevated balance sheet, has to hold more government of Canada debt as a result. So they're playing a bigger role uh, in that market to the extent that that has an influence on the interest rates for that government Canada debt. Well, that, you know, that that may not be desirable, right? So, uh, there are these upsides and these downsides. I don't think there's a major uh, disadvantage of the floor system, um, but there are these, you know, like I said, upsides and downsides that we just need to sort of understand and make sure we're aware of. Uh, that's right. I mean, there's uh, we still haven't, the, the Bank of Canada still hasn't settled on the exact form that CBDCs are going to take. I mean, uh, one of the possibilities is actually opening up uh, deposits uh, at the retail level at the, at the Bank of Canada, that would likely, in fact, uh, shift uh, the demand for deposits from the banking system to the Bank of Canada. And, you know, potentially um, the question of whether the, the Bank of Canada could, could do this more efficiently than chartered banks could, I think that's a big question. But if, if enough, enough, uh, deposits shifted to the Bank of Canada, uh, as Jeremy said, that if the Bank of Canada still limits itself primarily or exclusively to holding federal government debt, it's going to be uh, having playing a bigger, bigger and bigger role in that market, influencing the interest rates in that market, and with that has spillover effects onto interest rates in other, you know, all sorts of, across the spectrum as well. Um, the other big question is uh, if, if the balance sheet were to expand enough because of, uh, say, you know, opening up uh, retail deposits, that's a liability for the Bank of Canada. Uh, so the, the bank would at least have to play a bigger role, hold larger, a larger fraction of federal government debt outstanding. And um, the, the temptation or the, the possibility of the danger we think i think it's a danger would be there that it expands into holding other types of assets that happened that has happened in the u.s i mean the, the fed actually hoard, uh, holds a wide range of assets including um, mortgage derivative securities right now and that's basically what that means is that the central bank then actually is a enters as a player in credit markets and the the how credit gets allocated 
And we, I mean, I, I certainly think that this is something that the, the central bank should steer clear of, it should stick to monetary policy with its main goal of keeping inflation under control and not get into the credit allocation business. Can I jump in there, Michael? Um, yeah, so I fully agree with Steve's point about um, uh, the bank staying out of the credit allocation uh, business. I, I do want to clarify a couple of things on the CBDC front. Um, so that we haven't even settled on on the need for a, settle, a CBDC, let alone kind of the, the design. Um, and and I, from my conversations and, you know, from my understanding, I don't think that they're envisioning the version where everybody has a, deposit account at, at the bank of Canada. I think, I think that the desire is to be as least disruptive as possible to, uh, you know, the financial uh, sector, which I think is the, is the right move. I mean, there's a token based version of the CBDC where we don't need to have retail accounts much like we do today, right? We don't have, you know, we, we can hold public money in the form of cash without, um, you know, having to have an account at the bank of Canada. I think that that's, I think that's the desirable system. Um, and, but, but to Steve's point, I mean, there's a, there's going to be a range here where the size, uh, you know, of the Bank of Canada's balance sheet goes up based on whether they do the CBDC and then therefore the design of that CBDC and the decisions that we make on how to, how much public money versus private money to hold and what that then means for commercial banks and their balance sheets. Um, so I, you know, there's, there's a, I think there's still a wide range of, uh, you know, impact size with respect to CBDC, should that decision to, to do a CBDC go ahead. So let's come full circle here as we wrap up our time together. The, the Bank of Canada is raising interest rates at an unprecedented clip. It's a bit of a double-edged sword for the BOC itself, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, so I think I think what, what you're trying to get at there is, is this sort of story about operational uh, income versus loss, right. um, you know, because because what happens is, uh, you know the bank when they when the bank bought all these bonds during uh, during the pandemic and and as we exited out of it as part of QE um, uh, they paid those the, the bonds are at fixed rates whereas the settlement balances um, are based on the de the deposit rate and the overnight rate as it turns out under the floor system so as that overnight rate's gone up the deposit rate's gone up with it and the interest expense has gone up but the interest revenue has remained. You know, relatively the same. Obviously, it changes based on the bonds that they sell and the maturity of those bonds, but it stays relatively the same compared to the interest expense on those settlement balances. So, for the first time, really in the bank's history, they're they're likely headed towards uh, an operational loss, right? From, this, from the perspective of interest expenses exceeding interest income, what happens there um, is is complicated, right? There's a complexity to it because we haven't been through it. So the way that we read the act um, is the bank will first draw down on its reserve fund, but that reserve fund is pretty small relative to the holdings we're talking about here. So that reserve fund can go negative, uh, in which case when the bank becomes profitable again, it would replenish part. So the profit it would earn once it's back in a profitable position, part of that would go to replenish that fund, part of it would go to the government of Canada. What the Fed does, which we think is actually a better system, is it has what's called a deferred asset. And so it has to replenish that whole deferred asset before anything can be remitted back to the government. 
But to do that would require, we think, at least according to our understanding of the act, a change to the act itself. So there's there's a lot of complexity around this, um, uh, but but that's that's sort of from an operational perspective, uh, you know how it would work. Steve, I don't know if you maybe you want to touch on the indemnity agreement in, in your. I'm sure you have some stuff to say as well. <laughs> um, Jeremy, talk about what's happening in terms of uh, operating revenue and expenses. Another extremely complex question is that. Uh, especially longer term bonds that the Bank of Canada is holding uh, are subject as interest rates rise are subject to an unrealized capital loss. And so there's a, the, the, there's a question of how to deal with that just from a pure accounting perspective. If you actually uh, put that on the books, um, your, the value of the bank's assets are decreasing as interest rates increase. And that means that the value of the bank's, equity position is decreasing as well. Uh, you know, so that could actually, that has a similar effects to what happens with operating. If you're, if the bank is running an operating loss and running down its, uh, its reserve. So this, uh, and once the, the, the indemnity agreement is there that, uh, the, the government is supposed to compensate the, the bank of Canada for, uh, capital losses that it suffers. Uh, due to rising interest rates. But they, you know, they, once again, the, the details of this are extremely complex. Uh, we've, we're starting to, we've, we've had discussions with people at the Bank of Canada, and it's not 100% crystal clear how this is all going to come out in the wash. We think um, that, the, the, I mean, the Bank of Canada, you know, at least in its recent announcements, it, it sort of said, well, we're continuing our quantitative tightening program. So essentially what that means is they're letting assets run off their balance sheet as they mature. We, we think we think the bank needs to do a bit more explaining about how all these things are operating in a, in a way that the general public can understand. Uh, so if, if we're having such a hard time understanding what's going on, I think uh, <laughs> the, people, the general public is going to have a hard time understanding what's going on as well. Okay, so then, um, since we've only barely scratched the surface of an incredibly detailed report, uh, final question to each of you. If there is one takeaway for the listener, what would it be in your mind? Steve, uh, age before beauty. You know, we've gone from the this corridor system to a floor system. Uh, the bank has said, well, you know, we're just going to keep on sort of carrying on, letting stuff run off the balance sheet gradually at, uh, in a very passive kind of a way. Um, I, I think it's it's incumbent upon the bank to say, are we with the floor system forever? Are we going to go back to a quarter system? If so, how are we going to get there? Um, and, and, you know, ex explain and, you know, do some planning on what's going to happen over the next four or five years with its balance sheet, what that implies for a floor system versus a corridor system, and think about how to communicate all this to the public. Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, that's I think that's a really interesting way of putting it. So, I mean, you know, inflation is at a 40-year high, and I think the banks, obviously, you know, their credibility has taken a bit of a hit. And there's fears, and I think rightful fears, uh, about politics getting 
you know, in the way of the independence of the central bank. And so, you know, one of the most important things you can do to, to alleviate those concerns, well, first is get inflation back down. And I think they're, they're doing that. Um, and, and, you know, through, largely through interest rate hikes, which is, I think, largely what they have to do to get inflation back down. I'm not sure how much uh, quantitative tightening, so shrinking the balance sheet faster, would really have much of an impact. So I think they're taking care of that. But then to Steve's point, you know, on the independence, um, you know, communication and explaining things is, I think, critical to making that work. Um, and so there are, you know, the, the future of the balance sheet um, might look a lot different than it did pre-pandemic. And, and I think it's important then to make clear that this doesn't um, change the ability of the central bank to hit the inflation target. Um, and, and that's the point, you know, we explain why we think the balance sheet is going to stay elevated or at least elevated relative to it was. But at the end of the day, we don't see a major, um, you know, impact on the, the bank's ability to hit the target, whether it's a floor system or a corridor system. But, um, you know, so I think communicating along those lines and that they're going to remain focused on, um, you know, staying out of markets other than the government of Canada debt market, which they've already always played in, uh, I think will be critical here. Jeremy Cronick is the Director of Monetary and Fiscal Services Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. Steve Ambler is a fellow in residence. Visit cdhowe.org for their report co-authored with fellow in residence Torsten Kopel titled Covetus, The Future of the Bank of Canada's Balance Sheet. Still to come from the C.D. Howe, the 2022 Scholars Webinar Series. On November 10th, the Institute welcomes Joseph Stiglitz, the professor of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University and the recipient of the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences and the John Bates Clark Medal. And November 15th, Leveraging Real-Time Data for Real Health Benefits, a webinar with Janet Davidson, a fellow in residence at the Institute and chair of the board of the Digital Research Alliance of Canada, along with Kimberlyn McGrail, professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health, alongside David O'Toole. He is the president and CEO of the Canadian Institute for Health Information. If you're watching us on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe and click that bell icon, of course, to get the latest episode of the podcast. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.